Okay. What's next on the bulletin? Is it time for the scripture reading? It's time for the sermon. All right. Will you turn to Genesis? Look at there. We're going back to Genesis. You know, I was thinking last time that uh, we did that brief hiatus on fear, that we were coming back to a couple sermons on Genesis, and we're actually coming back to one. We're at the end of Genesis 1 through 11. This is it. You look at your bulletins, it's going to be 10 through 11, but we're actually going to focus on the Tower of Babel. And uh, we'll kind of explain that in a second. So we are done with Genesis after this. So what are we going to do next time? Start praying. Let's figure it out. I think I'm wrestling with either. You know what I love about, um, this is 10 years now I've been here. Can you believe that? 10 years since the Lord called us this summer to come here. And those of you that are not familiar with the church, we arrived in August, September. We just started meeting with folks. We ended up having a lot of folks starting to gather at Providence Hospital. We did that in September, did that in October. The numbers kept growing. The folks in Dallas said, listen, you got to start public worship now. I'm like, no, it's too early. But we did. And so the first thing we preached through was Colossians. Now, some of you weren't there. And those of you who were there, you don't remember them. So you know what I might do? I might do a little series on Colossians, Virginia. What do you think about that? Good, thank you. <laughs> Supremacy of Christ kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's what we might do. Or maybe we'll do some parables. Or maybe we'll do the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know yet. I know we will do a series on Scripture somewhere in there. And why will we do that? <laughs> I'm getting real bad, aren't I? You know why we're going to do it? Because I've been asked to do a conference somewhere. And I can't do two at the same time. So, you know, it's God's providence. It's for us too. Is the fear one okay for you? Okay. So the Lord isn't just stuck on one group of people that he's wanting things to be heard, right? So we trust him for that too. All right. Three days would have... In three days, I and my not-then wife and about 55 of us would have been gone for a year. Away from home, away from the good old U.S. of A. And so what happened is the orientation leaders were getting ready to go. With these 55 of us, the orientation leader said, you know, why don't we, uh, why don't we just kind of share with what we think we're going to miss most about home. Now, people started sharing, obviously, about missing family and friends and about certain places and things they do. The imprint of home on people, food. I mean, my not yet wife, but she was certainly on my radar. One of the things she said was chips and salsa, like a true Texan. I'd been out of Texas for a while, so I hadn't been back in Texas yet. I was like, what? What's that? But I shared something from the depths of my being, unlike my thou wife. I shared something that was so emotionally moving and so emotionally profound, it moved everyone in the room. It was just so incredibly significant, so incredibly deep. It demonstrated the wealth and the the contours of my heart. And I said, what I will miss most is football. (laughs) Now, for everyone, the year away created a greater longing for home. You ever been away? What ends up happening? Great longing for home. 
In fact, I made several country music tapes before I went over. Now, there were were six people on our team, and many of them hated country music. But you want to know, by the end of that year, you know what the number one requested tapes were on the team? Jeff, where's where's that tape on such and such? Do you have that tape on Garth Brooks? Do you have that bop, bop, bop? Why? Because that music gave incredible pictures of home. And everybody wanted to think of home. We'd lie awake at night and think of home, think of the faces of our family, I'd think of certain foods, I'd think of certain places. I literally used to think of this. I used to think of running down streets lined with trees at sunset and breathing in the fresh air because I'd been breathing in for a whole year not clean air. And I was tired of looking at grayness everywhere. Tired of unfamiliar faces, unfamiliar language, cultural things that, that we used to say it's enough to make a missionary cuss when this stuff happens. And then we'd have these conversations like we'd have, remember at our orientation training, someone would say, remember at our integration into culture training, you're supposed to remember that this is not wrong, it's just different. And I'd say, no, that's wrong. So it was the familiarity, getting home. Everybody longs for home. It's where you fit. It's where you belong. It's where you're yourself, right? C.S. Lewis, I think, said it really well. Home is where you're accepted. It's where you're welcomed. It's where you're taken in. After we landed in New York City, the whole plane, it was just instantaneously started singing, God bless America. I mean, you can imagine 55 of us sprinkled with another 100. And we, it wasn't planned. It just happened. First thing I did when we got off the plane, I grabbed Nancy and I headed to McDonald's. I had four Big Macs, two milkshakes, and endless fries. Why? Because I'd been on a diet that was very strange to me. I'd lost 20 pounds, and this to me was healthy food. But did you notice I said I grabbed Nancy? Mm-hmm. The girl on the radar? Right? I grabbed her. You know what happened two months later? We got married. Very profitable year. So I tell people who are thinking about being missionaries. I tell this to college students who are thinking about being missionaries. It's a great way to find a wife. Great way to find a husband. So kids... Remember that, my kids too. All right. Being home was great, though. I couldn't get enough of it. You know what happened after a while? What happens? Home gets old. Home wasn't able to deliver all that I wanted from it. Home started disappointing me again. I was still longing for home. You know what's crazy about this passage? You know, your first instinct when you read the Tower of Babel, what's your first instinct? What's it about? You know what it's about? It's about people in search of home. It's about people who have a longing for home and never arrive. That's what this passage is about. You know what this passage is about? It's about the human condition. You know what this passage is about? It's about your own heart. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, I told you we got to get oriented here a little bit, don't we? We got, 
we got chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, stacked in between two descendants. Remember? Genesis is structured how? Ten toledots. That's the Hebrew word, toledot. It means histories, genealogies. It's not referring to, here's the origin. It's referring to, here's the history of this line of people. So in the first toledot... Well, actually, if you look at chapter 10, just look up. These are the generations of... This is now the fourth Toledot. This is following all the, the nations that descended from the three sons of Noah. Okay? And the purpose was is to show this is how the earth was populated. And it was written to Israel to show them this is where and why. Because when you look at that list in 10, guess what you end up hearing over and over again? You start finding out where the Egyptians came from. That's very important to Israel, wasn't it? You start finding out about where Assyrians come from, Babylonians come from, and that will play huge. The Canaanites, where they come from, they're about ready to go into the promised land, the future in Israel's history, Assyrian, Babylon, all these different enemies of God. You start finding out where all that starts coming from. Then you have the Tower of Babel. Then you have another genealogy. And what happens in this genealogy? Notice it happens outside or after the Tower of Babel, and it starts picking up the split again between the two seeds. The two seeds, way back in Genesis 3.15, of the woman and of the serpent, they happen again. They show up again in the genealogy after the Tower of Babel. So tucked in there, these two genealogies, is the Tower of Babel. So let's look at it. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice, what's driving them is what? Fear. Fear of being dispersed. That's driving this whole drama. Okay? All right, where are we? Five. And the Lord came down to see the city. That's a, that is a wonderful picture. Do you get the picture? Man is trying to make a name and build himself up high. And God has to look down from heaven, come down, and see it. To God, he has to get down to see it while man's trying to elevate himself up. It's a tremendous picture. All right, the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose or propose to do now will be impossible for them. This is not saying that now they can do anything. What it's saying is what they want to do, he's going to stop. Okay? Now, come, let us go down, and therefore confuse their language. Again, what's this let us go down? That's the heavenly court. That's the heavenly throne room. That's God talking to the heavenly courtroom, and he's saying, let us. Okay? That's the image there. Let us come down. Confuse their language. They can't understand another speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord, there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O Lord, we ask that you 
would move in powerfully. You would move in personally. We ask that you would do what only you can do, which is open our eyes. That you can do what only you can do, which is open our hearts. And that while we were sinners, you loved us. And you demonstrated it in your son. So even now, we tend to think, I got to get clean to even hear the scriptures. I got to get clean to even have some God speak to me and do something to me. Oh, Lord, we know that's not true. Because while we were sinners, you came for us. So, oh Lord, regardless of where everyone's at, would you come for us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, C.S. Lewis in his famous sermon. Most of you know it, The Weight of Glory. Heard about that? This is what he said. He said, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in which the universe, to something, with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is not a mere neurotic fantasy. See what he's saying? This kind of longing, this kind of transcendent longing and desire is not a neurotic thing in us. What he's saying is he says this, it's the index of our condition. The longing for home, this transcendent longing for home, is the index of your human condition. It, it's behind all we do. Isn't that amazing? Tim Keller in his recent book, The Prodigal God, said that many people in this church have shared with him that around this time of the year, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and there are a lot of 20-somethings. The average age of the church that he's in is 29 in New York City. And he said that a lot of them share with him that they have these incredible desires and expectations of when they go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And he said they say things like hoping that this year, finally, the gathering of the family will deliver an experience of warmth and joy and love and community that they've always longed for. And this is what he says. But these events almost always fail. Crushed under the weight of our impossible expectations. Now the Tower of Babel is going to tell us why that's the case. Why we have these impossible expectations that never come through for us. In other words, the Tower of Babel is going to show us why we long for home and never arrive. And never get there. That's what the Tower of Babel is going to do. So here's our plan. You ready? Our plan is to look at why... Answer this question. Our point's in a question format. Why... Why do we long for home and never, always, and never arrive? Why is there always a longing for home and there's never a full arrival? Why is that the case? We're going to answer it. We're going to get that point. When we do, we're going to look at it two specific ways, two specific directions, and then we're going to finally go home. So our first part of our journey is unsettling. It doesn't get better when we look at the two applications, but then... The tension's released and we go home. So if you can hold on, you will go home. Hold on, we'll get there. Okay? So let's look at the answer first. Why do we always long for home but we never arrive? The first clue is traveling east. Look at verse 2. This is a little translation. You find it in the NIV, the NAS. I'm sad to say the ESV, the one we have, seems to confuse us. Because what does it say? 
It says that they migrated from the east. The literal translation is that they migrated eastward. Okay? So what's happening here is that the people are moving eastward. And in Genesis, traveling eastward is always in the wrong direction. In Genesis, traveling eastward is always going in the wrong place to try to find home. How do we know this? Remember right at the beginning, Genesis. When Adam and Eve fell, what happened to them? Which direction were they driven to? East of Eden. East of God's garden. They had to make a home there. And they never fully got one. What happened when Cain killed Abel? What did God do? Where did he drive him? It said it drove him even further east of Eden. And there he tried to find a home. He built that big city, remember? And what do we know about that city? Was that home? No, he had a murderous grandson. And remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? He sought a home too, and he sought a land. Now listen to how he described the land he was seeking. Listen to it. It was like the garden of the Lord. Which direction did he go? East of his uncle Abraham. And what two famous cities are east of Abraham? Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you see the repetition here? Do you see what the scriptures are trying to do? If you're reading this as a Hebrew, if you're reading this as a good story, which it is, a historical story, you're saying, oh, they're going east. Ding, 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 ding. That's the wrong direction if you want to find home. Don't go in that direction. And maybe up at this point, the Hebrews that are getting this text, it hasn't happened to them. But guess what happens when they finally fall as a nation from the golden calf and they reject out of fear to go into the promised land because of the giants. Which way does God send them into the wilderness? East. See the picture? East is the wrong direction to try to find home. East is always going away from God. Okay? That's our first clue. Now, I want you to see something here, though. I want you to see that East symbolizes going away from God, but I want you to see that that the longing for home is not being rebuked in this text. The desire to have a name is not being rebuked in this text. What's being rebuked? What's being shut off? The direction you go to get it. East. The longing for home is right. The longing for home is good. The longing for home is the DNA of being God's image bearer. The desire to have a name, the desire to find yourself, the desire to be accepted, to be let in, to be taken in, to be welcomed is the DNA of you, of being an image bearer. The issue in the text is what direction do we go to find it? Okay, first clue. So the second clue to why do we always long for home and never arrive? You've got to look at verse 1. Now watch this. This is incredible. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Don't let that run by you. This is what it was like before they went on their search. Do you see the picture? Unity in communication. Unity in language. Do you see that? Relational blessing. Relational community. Home. Hmm. Now don't miss this. Where are they in verse 1? Where do they dwell in verse 1? 
Where's the place and location that verse 1 takes place? Do you know where it is? The last recorded place that we are given before this this migration east took place is back at Genesis 9.20. And guess where that is? Noah planted what? A garden. Right after the flood where the Lord took his people... They came out of the ark and he put him in this place. And in this place, Noah tended a garden. And from that garden, one language, a community that has blessing and well-being and prosperity, home, they move east. So here's our second clue. Why would they do that? Why, if you're in God's place, would you leave God's place and go east? To try to find home. Why would you do that? You know what the answer is? We've already seen it in Genesis. The answer is as old as the first sin. Adam and Eve were in the garden. What happened there? What did they do? They distrusted the bounty of God. That's what happened. What they did is they said, there's another bounty out there and I want that. And what these people have done is that they moved east because they had a bounty replacement in their mind and in their heart. They left the bounty of God, distrusted the bounty of God to seek another bounty to find home and another bounty to make a name for themselves. That's what took place. Okay? All right, we're not done yet. Keep going. Third clue. Look at verse 8 and 9. What happened? So the Lord dispersed them from where they were over the face of the earth. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Do you see that? Okay. The search for home by traveling east, which means going away from God. The search for home by distrusting the bounty of God, rejecting the bounty of God, always deserves dispersion. Always. The picture of being dispersed is this. It's the picture of being scattered to pieces till there's nothing left. The picture of dispersion is being banished from the bounty of God. The picture of dispersion is being driven out from the presence of God. The picture of dispersion... Relationally, if you were to describe it relationally, it's wrecked relationship with God. It's dislocated. It's disintegrated. It's fallen to pieces. That's the picture. In other words, it's Babel. Babel is mass confusion. It's mass chaos. It's mass disintegration. What Babel is, is you don't find a home. You don't find a place. You don't find a place to be accepted. You lose your home. You fall to pieces in your home. It's not a place where you find yourself and make a name and and become who you're supposed to be. Instead, you lose yourself. You fall to pieces personally. Deserving to be dispersed is what always happens when we distrust the bounty of God and flee in the opposite direction to try to find home and make a name. You disintegrate. You get scattered. Your relationship with God... 
your own being personally and how you see yourself and what you try to build your life around and how you perceive who you are and what you become and the way you relate to other people and then the way you handle your vocation, the way you use God's gifts, the way you go out into the world, your everything's disintegrating. That's what happens. Now, I want you to not miss this. Look at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, lest we make a name, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. They got what they feared for. They were driven by a fear to not disintegrate, to not lose themselves, to never find home. And they got it. Do you see that? Okay. So here's the point. When you put all these clues together, traveling east, away from God, distrusting the bounty of God, deserving to be dispersed, when you put them together, here's our point. Our hearts are not naturally at home with God. That's the point. All right? Now, that's a nice point, isn't it? Our hearts are not naturally at home with God. Okay. That helps me. It does help us. Because if you don't realize that your heart is not naturally at home with God, you're never going to fully understand why you do what you do. And here's the point. I want you to see, Babel is focusing on our hearts, because this is the way our hearts are right now. But some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, isn't there an element as a Christian? We're not fully home yet. We're not at our final home. So we never really arrive completely here because we haven't fully arrived where we're supposed to be. The answer is yes. But Babel's not giving us that angle. Babel's not giving us the angle of heaven. It's not giving us the angle of the human condition and redemption. It's giving us the human condition for both a Christian and a non-Christian, and that is our hearts are not naturally at home with God. Okay? Now, how do we know that? We have now seen four toledots of that on display, of how when sin entered the world, hearts got messed up, and we've seen four histories of messed up hearts that are not at home with God. That's how we know. All right? Now, some of you are thinking, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe my heart's messed up. I really don't. And in fact, I don't believe my heart is so messed up, and I don't believe that God is my ultimate home. And all I want to say is I just want you to think about one thing. Just one thing to consider. Humor me if you don't. Now, oh, whatever, pastor, of course you're going to say something like that. But just think about it for a second. Reason with me. Just reason with me. Okay? Here's my point. If you search for your home, if you're searching for your home, where you're accepted, where you're taken in, where you're welcomed, okay? If you're trying to find your name, find yourself, become yourself, if you're doing this, and the way you're doing this is by, by being a well-liked person, okay? If that's what you're doing. Home is being a well-liked person. That's where you're accepted. That's where you're taken in. Finding yourself, being a well-liked person then all you are is a person that people like. That's it. That's all you are. And then, someone in your life, you're going to come across 
that doesn't like you? What happens to you then? Who are you? You lose yourself. You're never home. Do you see that? So just think about that as we continue to move through this text, okay? All right, let's go. I want the two applications. Let's do it. Two specific directions surrounding this point. Here are the two. There are two ways that the heart that's not naturally at home with God tries to get home. Two ways. One is the heart slaves away from God. The other is the heart, in other words, the heart tries to get home by slaving for God. The heart tries to get home by performing for God. The heart tries to get home by working for God. The heart tries to get home by His goodness and His obedience. The heart tries to get home by dancing before God. That's how the heart tries to get home. The other way is the heart just wants to please itself. So the heart tries to get home by pleasing your passions, or your heart tries to get home by pleasing God. All right, that's the two ways. I want to look at the first one right now. Trying to get home by slaving for God will not get you home. This kind of Christianity is running hearts into the ground. It's not real Christianity at all, but it's, it's, it dominates Christianity today because it dominates our heart. We slave away for God. We think that we're going to get home if we slave away for God, and we never get home when we do that. It runs your heart into the ground. It's running Christian families into the ground. It's driving church kids out of the church when they get out of school and on their own. Fact. In fact, Keller says that New York City is full of 20-somethings, kids that grew up in Midwestern churches and Southern churches that were full of slaving for God Christianity. And they fled it. Genesis would say they went east to the big city to try to find a home and to try to make a name for themselves away from God. Here's why this is the case. Slaving for God will not get you home. It will not get you welcomed. It will not get you taken in. It will not get you accepted because the basis of you being welcomed and the basis for your name is your spiritual performance. And what that means is that's all you are is your spiritual performance. That's who you are. That's home. Okay? So you are driven by fear and insecurity on how well your spiritual performance is doing. And that's what happens when we slave away for God. So what happens, too, is that your name... Is becomes who you are becomes your latest spiritual performance, whether it was good or bad. So if it's good, you're doing okay. If it's bad, you're not doing okay. But hidden within that is always a neurotic, driving, pulsing insecurity and fear that you haven't done enough or you're going to lose control. Okay? All right. So what happens here is that when we try to find home by slaving away from God, our spiritual performance becomes our replacement of the bounty of God. All right? Now let's look at the other one. The other one is kind of like everybody looks at that and we all go, oh, of course, you know. Church people read this passage and we know instinctively that trying to find your way home to please yourself is not the way you get home. 
We all know that, right? You look at that and you say, of course, that's wrong. They're going away from God. Yep, yep, never good. That's the way we see this passage. But I want you to see something else about this passage. I want you to see that trying to get home by pleasing yourself can be, look this way, you can try to get home by pleasing yourself by taking a good desire and try to make home out of it. I mean, we all know the bad desires. Good night. All right, go to, you know, the story of the parable, the prodigal son. Where does he go? Prostitutes, wine. All right, everybody says, no, that's not good. But do we know, do we realize that trying to please ourselves can actually be trying to get home, trying to make a name out of a good desire? Think about that. I mean, think about it this way. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be liked? No. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be loved? Is there anything wrong with the desire for respect? Is there anything wrong with the desire for comfort and peace and ease? Is there anything wrong with not wanting conflict? Is there anything wrong with not wanting to suffer? There's nothing wrong with that. You weren't made for that. Those are good desires. They're they're the desires that are etched on the DNA of you being an image bearer. I mean, God even commands husbands, love your wife. Desire for love is not a bad desire. God commands wives to do what? Respect your husbands. Of course, respect is a good thing to desire. Here's what happens. Those good desires, though, continually grow and grow and grow and grow so that they move from a good desire to an ultimate desire desire they move to replace the bounty of God they become God replacements in other words what happens I mean you have this here's a someone says a hurtful word to you and it's disrespectful is it wrong to be hurt no is it wrong to say that hurt That bites deep. But here's what happens is that desire for respect can become, I must have respect to be okay. I must have respect to have a home. And so then what happens is now you got to fight for home and you got to fight for yourself and you got to make your name protected and so you fire back. And you attack. Okay? The reason why most and a lot of suffering that we go through is so devastating is that the suffer- we, we end up piling two pains on top of the suffering. You've got the suffering that you get that's legitimate. You touch a burner. It hurts. That's painful. It's not supposed to be that way. This is a good desire. But then what happens is whatever you're suffering from, you end up saying, I've got to be free from this to live. I can't have well-being if this is in my life. It's now become ultimate. It's now become the bounty of God replacement. Do you see this? So when we see that our hearts are not naturally at home, we could try to find it by slaving for God to get there. Or we could try to find it, which with the Tower of Babel is, is that we just want to please ourselves and try to get there. And it doesn't have to be bad pleasures. Normal, good, healthy, God-image-bearing desires can do it. Okay? All right, so how do we get home? Here's the deal. Knowing this stuff is not going to get you there, is it? 
Okay, so you know this, you accept it, you see that, yeah, my heart's not naturally at home with God, I see the implications that I can't get home by slaving for God, and I can't get home by trying to please myself, I can't do that. That won't change you. What you have to do is experience home. I can't, I can't say, home is like this. My home's like this. And you go, wow, I feel that. You've got to experience home. And that's what this text wants to do to you. Watch how it does it. If you look at verse 10, all right? Watch what happens. Verse 10 starts the fifth Toledot, the fifth history. You ready? The fifth Toledot, the fifth history, dead ends at a guy named Abram. Now, Abram and his family were part of the group that was scattered at Babylon. Don't forget that. Abram and his family are, are the folks that went eastward. They're the ones that traveled east away from God. They're the ones that distrusted the bounty of God. They're the ones that were deserved to be dispersed. That's what's happening here. Now look at 12, verse 1 and 2. This is like a huge break-in now. I mean, where's he been? We haven't heard God's name for a while now. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Guess where it is? Back west. God's saying, I'm taking you home, Abram. I will bring you home. Now, don't miss this. Abraham is in the middle of minding his own business. He's doing like you and me. He's trying to make a name for himself, trying to find himself, trying to become himself, trying to make sure he's okay. He's, he's trying to find home. He's trying to find a place he's accepted. He's trying to find a place that takes him in and welcomes him. He's trying to do it all in East. And God finds him. And God brings him home. That's so radical, it's unbelievable. That is completely undeserved. It's totally bountiful, plentiful, overflowing, till it spends itself completely grace. Abram is going this way, and God says, I'm going to take you home. Now listen to how God expends himself here. Listen to how he exhausts himself. Listen to what he gives of himself to welcome Abraham, to accept him, to bring him home. I mean, listen to what he says. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? In verses 1 and 2, what does he say? I'll make your name great. Do you see that? That's exactly what, the, that's exactly what they wanted. That's exactly what drove them to go east of the garden. And God says, I'll do that. I'll make your name great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to a land. I'll give you home. I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. It's completely radically undeserved. So how do we find our way home? First thing you've got to do, the first thing we, we have to experience that. You've got to experience this father overflowing with compassion and radical grace and bounty and extreme love for you. 
while you're fleeing from him. While you distrust him. While you deserve to be dispersed. And home gets a little closer. But we're not done yet because that still won't do it. Something else needs to happen, and we're not going to find your way home until you see that the the father actually spent everything he had to get Abram back. In other words, the father spent till he had nothing left to get Abram back. And how do we know? Because he spent his own son. And what he ends up doing... When you fast forward through redemptive history, because you get a sneak preview in Genesis 3.15 of this seed that's coming, and what ends up coming is this seed finally comes, and when that seed does show up on history, Jesus willingly, and the Father sends him and exhausts himself and spends everything and says, the only way I can bring Abram back is if I scatter my own son to pieces. And so the dispersion that we see here is the dispersion that Christ took to bring you back home. The Father scatters His Son to pieces to bring you back. I mean, that's radical. That's where home is. I didn't tell him that I was going to do this, but Cal, can you come here for a second? Come on up here, bud. Just stand with me right here for a second. Come here. I didn't tell him. Now, this is my son. I wouldn't scatter him to pieces for any one of you. Not one of you would I scatter him to pieces for. Do you see how radical that God would scatter his son to pieces for you? How radically extreme is that grace and that love? And the son said, you bet, Dad, because I love him too. And I want to bring him home just as much as you do. Brothers and sisters, you experience that, there's home. That's where you find yourself. That's where your name becomes great. That's where you're accepted and you're welcomed and you're taken in. That's where you're at home. Amen.